Thank you, worship team. It is good to have more of you on stage this morning. Thanks for being here. Well, grace and peace uh, to you, Powerhouse Church. Uh, thanks for tuning in this morning. For those who might be tuned in who don't know who I am, my name is Aaron. I get to be the pastor of the church here uh, at Powerhouse. And we're going to be jumping into Matthew chapter 27 this morning. So if you have a Bible at home or if you have a tablet or a phone that you have a Bible on, we'd love for you to join us in reading. I'll be reading from the NIV version this morning. But this morning we find ourselves at the start of Holy Week. And Holy Week is a unique and special set of days within the Christian calendar. It's a week that we ought not just recognize that it's happening, but it's a week that we ought to be participating in as a church. This is the home stretch of Lent, if you will. All of our fasting and praying for the past 40 days have led us to this week as we journey with Jesus to the cross and eventually to the empty tomb. But in our church, we likely would have had at least a couple of other gatherings this week along with our typical worship service. One would have been a Maundy Thursday prayer gathering in which we sort of participate in that final meal that Jesus has with his disciples. And the other would have been a Good Friday service. And in an attempt and in an effort for our church to extend you the opportunity to engage in Holy Week, we've prepared, as you heard in the announcements, household devotionals for you and we hope that you will utilize those at the same time every day this week with those who are part of your household. If you don't have one just yet, just let the church office know and we will get one to you. But one of the reasons why I want to encourage you to do that so much uh, this week is that really to make sense of Easter, we need to recognize and celebrate and participate in all of these events that led up to that Easter morning, that first Easter morning. Because Good Friday in particular necessarily precedes Easter. That is, the cross always comes before the empty tomb. And in fact, it is the cross that makes sense of the empty tomb. And in the same way that Easter um, needs Good Friday, Good Friday needs Palm Sunday, which is today. You see, the cross has been and will always be at the center of Christian faith. In his book, The Cross of Christ, the prominent English scholar John Stott writes these words. He says, there is no Christianity without the cross. If the cross is not central to our religion, our, ours is not the religion of Jesus. Or consider the preeminent German theologian Jürgen Moltmann, who once wrote, at the center of Christian faith is the history of Christ. At the center of the history of Christ is his passion and his death on the cross. You see, the significance of the cross for Christian faith is seen in its centrality in the midst of Christian worship. If you were to walk into any sanctuary or cathedral around the world, including ours here this morning, what you would discover is that the icon that is in the middle of our sacred space here is the cross. In fact, there are many sacred Christian buildings that were architecturally designed in the shape of a cross. And so we see in Christian theology, we see in Christian worship, and we see in the architectural design of our buildings that the cross is central to who we are. It forms us and who we are as a people. But the meaningfulness of the cross doesn't derive just because there's a cross there. It doesn't derive because there's, we, we think that there's something special about crosses in general or even about crucifixion specifically. 
is that there, there in fact is nothing distinguishingly important about crosses or crucifixion. There's nothing about that mode of capital punishment that really means much of anything to us. I mean, you see the, the ancient Jewish historian Josephus who records that the Roman Empire executed thousands of people by means of crucifixion throughout history is that there were many people who were crucified on crosses. I mean, we see this in the, the, in, in the story in the Gospels when Jesus is crucified, is that there is a criminal to his left, there is a criminal to his right, and so it's not necessarily crosses or crucifixion that is meaningful for Christian worship and Christian theology and belief. What matters to us is the one. It, what matters to us is the identity of the one who is crucified on that Good Friday. You see, what makes Good Friday good is not the death of just another Jewish peasant from Galilee. What makes Good Friday good is the identity of one of those three men that were executed nearly 2,000 years ago today was the Son of God. And that truth is revealed to us every Palm Sunday. You see, many of us know the event of Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem as the triumphal entry. It's just a subheading that editors of the Bible uh, sort of give the story. I love the one that's in there in my current NIV edition that reads, Jesus comes to Jerusalem as king. Now, we're not going to read the passage this morning, but if you wanted to check it out, it's located in Matthew chapter 21. But each year... We recognize this moment where Jesus enters into Jerusalem for the Passover festival. And his entrance into Jerusalem is a unique one. You see, centuries earlier to Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem, the prophet Zechariah prophesied that the Messiah, that the King of Israel would return to Jerusalem riding on a donkey and on a colt to the foal of a donkey. And Jesus enters Jerusalem at the beginning of Holy Week riding on a donkey as a proclamation that he is the Messiah, that he is the long-awaited King of Israel. And as he traveled to the temple that Palm Sunday, which was at the heart of the city, crowds of people began to gather, waving palm branches and spreading their cloaks on the road and shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna means save us. Save us, God. And so each year across the globe, we have our children and admittedly some adults who come into worship on Palm Sunday and we have them waving palm branches in our service. And truthfully, part of that practice or tradition for us is because we love to see just cute kids waving palm branches in the midst of our worship, sharing in the worship of our communities. But this tradition is really rooted in this idea that we recognize that the one who journeys to the cross of Calvary is the Son of God. He is the long-awaited Messiah. He is not just the King of Israel. He is the King of the whole world. You see, Jesus entered Jerusalem that week for Passover. But he did not enter just merely to celebrate Passover with his disciples and with his people. Is that Jesus enters into Jerusalem that week to be the Passover lamb. Not just for the Jewish people, but for the whole world. I imagine the scene of Jesus walking into Jerusalem that Palm Sunday, similar to the red carpet events of Hollywood but only for a single individual. The crowd is excited about the one that is 
making his way into the city. There's a palpable fervor in the air. Here is our Messiah. Here is our King. And it's because of this identity, those titles of Messiah and King, that Jesus is ultimately crucified on Good Friday. Notice in our reading this morning of Jesus' crucifixion in Matthew's gospel, how often the titles Messiah or King are mentioned. Let's turn to our gospel this morning. We're going to be reading Matthew 27, 32 through 54. Matthew records that Good Friday this way. He says, as they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots, and sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, leme sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. Fathers, we turn to your word this morning. Give us ears to hear. Give us ears to hear good news. Give us ears to hear the gospel anew and afresh that might form us more and more into the types of people you've created us to be. And it's in our Lord's name that we pray, amen. The Christian calendar works in three-year cycles, if you were unaware. And each cycle of the Christian calendar, we read through and examine the story of Jesus through the lens of one of the gospel writers. This year is Matthew, next year will be Mark, and the year after that will be Luke. 
But we're examining Matthew's recollection of that, that Holy Week event, in particular the death of Jesus. And what's really interesting about Matthew's record of this event is that he records some details about Jesus' crucifixion that none of the other gospel writers include in their telling of the story. And I want us to spend just a few moments together here examining one of the unique features or descriptions that Matthew has of this event in the life of Jesus. And they're found in verses 51 through 53. See, these verses share with us these two sort of details that are not found in the other Gospels. The verse detail that we find uniquely in Matthew's Gospel is that when Jesus dies, there is an earthquake. This earthquake was so strong that it split open rocks that served as tombs for the dead. Now, in ancient times, earthquakes could have been a sign of the arrival of a god or the action of a god. And we see this, in fact, in the Old Testament. There are moments in times where God appears and shows up and his presence is, is described as that of an earthquake. But more importantly for us, just a few chapters back in Matthew's gospel, Jesus says that when that, that final act of redemption breaks into the world, when God comes into the world to do a new thing, to, to bring about new creation, is that the early signs of that new creation breaking into the world are earthquakes. He says it would be like a sign of the beginning of birth pains, that is, that the earth and all of creation is beginning to experience new life in new ways, that is, Signs that God is bringing into the world new life and new creation. But the second detail that's really interesting about Matthew's account of Jesus' death is found in verses 52 and 53 where he writes these really strange, mystifying words. He says, after Jesus died, the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. It seems almost like this throwaway line in the larger story, sort of obscure record of these supernatural events that it's easier for us as modern, wiser, smarter people to sort of just pass by rather than linger and consider what it is that Matthew is talking about here. Well, when we sit back and consider what it is that Matthew is saying here, it raises all sorts of interesting questions to us. Like, who are these holy people that are being raised at Jesus' crucifixion? Is it Moses? Is it Abraham? Is it John the Baptist being raised from the dead? Is it just like really nice holy people? Like, who are these ones who are raised from the dead? But how, how is it that they come back to life? How is it that they gain life in this moment? What were their bodies like? Were they decayed still? Or do they have sort of like new bodies? And how did all of that work? It is like, why is Matthew the only gospel writer to record this event? It seems so spectacular. It seems so incredible that all of the gospel writers you think would have taken note of this in, in their storytelling of Jesus' death. I mean, this seems like a really big deal. Dead people becoming resuscitated and walking into the city during Passover where thousands, hundreds of thousands of people could have seen them. It's interesting little detail that Matthew gives to us, but what is it all about? 
See, frankly, I, I really don't know what to do with this story in some ways in that historical perspective. Like if you had a camcorder set there and you were live streaming Passover that weekend, what exactly would you have seen? I have no idea. And most biblical scholars say much the same. But those questions are certainly worth asking. But Matthew's inclusion of this detail of Jesus' death on the cross isn't added to draw our attention to those holy saints, those holy people who were raised from the dead. It's included to draw our attention to the significance of Jesus' death on the cross. You see, Matthew's contrast of Jesus' crucifixion and the holy saints, the raising of saints, couldn't be more striking in the gospel. His death brings about their life. The religious and political authorities thought that by eliminating Jesus, they were eliminating Jesus' movement. But what they discover is that their perceived power to kill is powerless in the face of God. You see, so often in the church, we believe that Jesus' crucifixion was a defeat, only to be followed by a delayed victory a few days later on Easter morning. But Matthew is telling us a very different kind of story The story and truth that Matthew is declaring to us is that Jesus' death itself is life-giving. Is that in Jesus' death, there is new life. In Jesus' death, there is new creation. It does not start at an empty tomb. It starts at the cross. This is the thing that makes Good Friday good. It's the combined description of the earthquake and the raising of the saints That makes this very point, the death of Jesus is the beginning of God's victory. This isn't a, we lost this battle on Good Friday, but we won the war on Easter Sunday. God was winning the battle and the war from start to finish, from Good Friday to Easter. See, in the crucifixion, the world's victory is really God's victory. In the crucifixion, the world's injustice displays God's righteousness. In the crucifixion, divine suffering reveals the depth of divine love. In the crucifixion, the chains of sin are broken. In the crucifixion, the world's work of destruction brings about God's work of salvation. And this is what Paul describes and calls the foolishness of the cross. See, in 1 Corinthians 1.18, Paul pens these words. He says, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Making the cross central to our faith seems like folly to the world. It seems like we're losing, but it is the wisdom of God. This is what Jesus means when he says, in dying, we live. On the cross, Jesus died for us He died so that we might live. And his death is the pattern by which we find and discover the saving power of God in our own lives. As one scholar wrote, a life shaped by the cross is a life bent on dying daily to self. That is, the power of God's salvation becomes accessible to us as we share in Jesus' death on the cross. That is where salvation begins. That is where victory, God's victory, and God's power first start, is death on the cross. But what does that look like for us? Forgive me for this illustration, but 
I've been watching a lot of Disney movies during our quarantining time, <laughs> navigating life in an 1,100-square-foot home with a toddler uh, has its challenges, and one of the ways that we've decided to face those challenges is just by sh- Disney Plus, just streaming, streaming movie after movie. But one of the things about watching TV with a toddler is that they love watching the same thing over and over and over and over again. They know all the lines. They know all the actions. And so I pretty much become an expert in Disney's Cars movies, particularly Cars 1 and Cars 3. 2 was just terrible, so we don't let him watch. Cars 2 is an awful movie, but we're going to sort of jump into Disney theology 101 according to Cars. For those who are unfamiliar with the plot of Cars 1, it is based around this character whose name is Lightning McQueen. Now, Lightning McQueen is this young, up-and-coming, sort of superstar race car. He's a ro- in his rookie season of competing, and he's ambitious. His whole life centers around victory and winning and becoming champion. It, it centers around beating everybody else so that he can be the best. And he's good. He's good, admittedly. He's really, really good. But the attitude that drives his ambition is the same part of his character and attitude that drives people away from him. That is, he lacks friends, he lacks a good team, because he's just all about himself. He's self-absorbed, he's about winning, but it's all about him. He wants the spotlight. And apparently, in the Disney world, arrogance, pride, and self-absorption aren't becoming attitudes that people really want to get to know you and be your friend. I would say much is true of the world today. And the movie really is about Lightning McQueen's self-discovery, his own recognition that winning isn't everything. And so the movie culminates in this dramatic final race between Lightning McQueen and two other race cars. They're racing for the grand prize, which is known as the Piston Cup. You've got to watch the movie if you want to understand why that's so important. But McQueen, in the midst of this final race, finds himself at the home stretch on the final lap, winning the race. And in that final lap, there's this dramatic turn of events where one of the other cars ends up wrecking and crashing. And as McQueen is driving towards the finish line, he sees that there's this wrecked car in the race who will be unable to finish. So just before he crosses the finish line, he slams on his brakes and comes to a screeching halt. And as his rival crosses the finish line to win the race and the grand prize, McQueen turns toward the smashed car on the infield and begins to push that car across the finish line. And as McQueen assists this car across the finish line, he technically, in that moment, finishes last place in the race. But as he crosses his line, the line, the, the crowd erupts in cheers and applause. And in the story, his transformation is complete. He has discovered that though he was winning before, he was really losing. And that in this moment, although he is losing, he is actually winning. He finds his life in dying to himself. And the call in Christian living is a call to die to yourself. And only in so doing can the power of God begin to save you. More specifically, we die to our own will and live for God's will. We die to our inclinations of revenge and bitterness, and we live instead in forgiveness and reconciliation. We die to ourselves. We die to greed and instead live with generosity. We die to bringing glory to our own lives and instead bring glory to God. 
We die to love of self and instead live for love of others. And this is why the penultimate image of what it means to be a follower of Jesus is to be a servant. A servant does not live for their own will, but freely forfeits their will to serve another, to serve God, and to serve their neighbor. You see, our salvation always has and always will begin with our dying church. This is why in baptism, we don't merely declare you raised with Christ. You are first placed under the water as a demonstration that you are dying to yourself, that you might live anew in Christ. And the question that comes to us every year during Holy Week is this one. What do you need to die to today? Perhaps there are some who are listening this morning who've never considered that life simply isn't about you. Perhaps you're a Lightning McQueen wondering what it is about your life that just can't get any traction You are in need of salvation that comes from God alone, and it is only in surrendering surrendering yourself to his will and to his purposes that you can discover the life that you were actually created to live. And the call to you this morning is to place your faith in the one who can actually save, who has the power to transform your life. But perhaps there are some this morning who are already followers of Jesus, and the question is the same to you this morning. What? do you need to die to today? Is there a part of your life that you're still living for yourself? Is there something in you that needs forgiveness? Is there something in your life that you need to surrender to God, that you need to give up? The call to you is the same call that you receive each and every day. Die to yourself and live for Christ. This is the only way that we can experience the saving power of God. Salvation starts with death. As we journey this week to the cross of Jesus Christ, the cross of a Messiah who can truly save, my prayer is that we as a church would discover the salvation that comes by his death.